Hello everyone, and if you'll give me just a moment, I have the great pleasure of recommending a tremendous and long-standing companion in history podcasting to you, Scott Chesworth and the Ancient World Podcast. Scott started around the same time as me in our slowly growing community of the time, and his was one of those that immediately stood out. He makes the subject as clear and complete as the sources allow, he's authoritative measured, and it's such a fascinating topic. So, I heartily recommend it to you, and here is Scott to tell you just a little more. Do you love Greek and Roman history, but also want to learn about all the ancient civilizations that came before them? Then The Ancient World is the podcast for you. You'll hear about the Sumerians, Akkadians, Babylonians, Assyrians, Hittites, and ancient Egyptians, right down through the Persians, Greeks, and Romans. You can find it all right here, and it's sometimes even funny. So check out the Ancient World Podcast wherever you get your pods or at ancientworldpodcast.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the History of England. Episode 143, The Champion of Christ. So, well and truly, back in the saddle. Feeling good. Looking a bit rubbish, but the HR department tells me that feelings are facts, so never mind. And thanks so much to everyone that's welcomed me back, it's felt good. The view currently, by the way, seems to be initially that the weekly word is good at the end. But look, how can you possibly know if you've not heard it at the start? So this week... I'm going to start with the weekly word, and you can then all tell me which is best. Deal? Grand. After the weekly word, we'll deal with the new king and his religious policy and the Lollards. That'll take us up to the eve of the Agincourt campaign, which we can then start off next week. So, my daughter wandered by the other day, and in a moment of the deepest, deepest boredom, decided that it might be worth giving a chat with Dad a bit of a go. Have you ever wondered, she said, why the plural of goose is geese, and yet the plural of moose is not meese? Now, almost as soon as I'd been told the answer to this, it was a bit like poor old Sherlock Holmes for my daughter. Sherlock used to complain that as soon as he explained one of his brilliant deductions, everyone decided it was trivially easy. The answer, of course, is that these words originate from different sources. Goose is from a Germanic root, the Old English goz, with the plural gies, and shares the same root as many European languages, Frisian, Dutch, German, Norse, and so on. Now, moose, on the other hand, is a much later import of Native American origin. 
It's a word from the Abenaki tongue, from the area from Maine to Quebec. And it first appeared in written form in a letter from a chap called Samuel Purchase. Samuel was part of the tradition of early travel writing, along with a chap called Richard Hakloyt, right at the end of the 16th century and start of the 17th. Neither of these two gentlemen did any travelling, let it be known, but they synthesised the materials and reports from others, and their writings had a great deal of influence and circulation throughout Europe. It's in his book, Pilgrimage, that Moose is first referred to from the travels of one Captain Thomas Hannam in 1606. That got me also thinking about where most of our words come from. One thing leads to another, you see, because initially I was rather surprised about Native American loanwords. And it turns out there are quite a few of them, 458 to be precise according to the Oxford English Dictionary, though I have to say the vast majority are either words for animals or peoples, or words that are lemon-suckingly obscure. There are a few that spring to mind, though, and worth mentioning. Powwow, wigwam, teepee, totem, skunk, raccoon, terrapin. Also, my daughter plays lacrosse, which I understand she really ought to be calling bagatiway, since it's a Native American word from what is now Canada, introduced into the UK in the late 18th century. Inspired, I then had a look at the OED's list of other Native American words and where they've come from. I noted with pleasure that we have three words from the Yapik people up there in central Alaska, and it looks as though the word yuck is one of their gifts to us. Thank you, Yapik people. It's a genuinely handy word. OK, so there we go, this week's weekly word. Now let's get back to the Lancastrian dynasty and that man or monster, Henry V. Although Henry is remembered generally for war, that's not the first impression he made in 1413 as he put together his administration and laid out his stall. One French observer said of him that he struck him more as a priest than a king. And Henry was impressively, gum-bleedingly pious and strictly conventional in his beliefs. He heard Mass at least three times a day. If your big-named magnate arrived at the palace expecting an immediate audience with the king, he'd be disappointed until the king had finished his prayers. Henry was a particular devotee of the Virgin Mary and St George, along with the traditional English saints you'd expect, like St Edward the Confessor. But he also had something of a passion for John of Bridlington, a relatively recent English saint from the seaside town of Bridlington, whose canonisation had been enthusiastically supported by Henry's father. A few things will become clear very quickly about Henry's religion. Firstly, he's intensely pious. Seriously, he's not just going along for the social side, in the good old Anglican tradition, a chance to catch up on the village gossip, oh dearie me, no. And secondly, he's rigorously orthodox. There's a whiff of the radical or even heretical about the Black Prince and, of course, the Lollard Knights around Edward III. Despite Richard II and Henry IV's clearly orthodox approach, neither of them really sought out Lollardy, and the slight odour of anti-clericalism hadn't entirely dissipated during their reigns. Henry chose as his confessor a chap called Stephen Partington, an academic of high standing and a passionate opponent of John Wycliffe 
When Partington died, he then chose Thomas Netter, who was known as, quote, the swiftest fire that ever smote the trunk of heresy. The rain, then, began with a flood of ecclesiastical endowments, including the Bridgetine Monastery of Sion at Twickenham, founded to be a powerhouse of prayer for the Lancastrian dynasty. From the start, Henry had a super-clear vision about how things were going to be done around here. There is an apparent contradiction. On the one hand, there's a man frighteningly concerned with his own dignity. There's a very famous story about how Henry hit a French courtier in the face when he became King of France, just because the French courtier looked him full in the face. This feels like the kind of behaviour a lunatic would show well into the advanced stages of tyranny, like Richard II on speed. But on the other hand, Henry made it equally clear that he would rule by consent and in partnership with Parliament. One of his first acts was to call a Parliament, and in his short reign he was to call Parliament 11 times. Essentially, Henry was a man that demanded everything to be done in the right way and to the full extent of the relevant rightness. God was meant to be worshipped, and so worshipped he would be. Henry was a king, and treated as a king he would be. The church was one holy, apostolic and Catholic church, and Catholic it would therefore remain, rather than being shattered into pieces by heresy. Parliament and the nobility had their role and dues, and they would be paid correctly, and they would be expected to fulfil their roles correctly. And they would be expected to fulfil their roles correctly, or else. Similarly, it was the time-honoured king's role to deliver peace. Law and order were in fact endangered species by the time of Henry IV's reign. There's more than one reason why this was the case and some of it is pretty fundamental and structural. The effectiveness of communication, the ability of the state to spend on standing forces to give just a couple. But one fundamental issue was that the maintenance of law and order relied very much on exactly those local lords who were often in the best position to break the law and get away with it. The Middle Ages at a local level in England are a constant struggle at all levels of society, to build up the family fortunes, and there was really only one reliable, surefire, copper-bottomed way of doing that. Land. Sorry, made the point before. We'll go on making it to the 19th century. Even if you didn't have land, you wanted it. And if you had land, you wanted more. If you were a successful merchant, you, guess what, bought land. So there are all kinds of goings-on in the struggle to build up a family estate. Random lawsuits started and backed up by force. Now over the next hundred years or so, we'll hear a lot more about a family called the Pastons. A significant Norfolk family who happened to leave a vast store of letters which give the most amazing insights into daily life, particularly during the Wars of the Roses. I'm introducing them a bit early really, so I'll come back to them. But let me just illustrate this point. Basically, the Pastons bought an estate. But a rival lord, Lord Molens, had an extremely weak claim. An option, not exercised within the proper time, to offer to buy the estate, that sort of thing. So what does Molens do? Does he retire gracefully? Not a bit of it. He simply takes the estate in 1448. And by superior force and intimidation, he holds it and collects the rent. This is on the basis that 1. 
Justice is extraordinarily slow, so worst case, he gets to collect rents for a while. 2. Justice is administered through local lords who can be influenced, maybe even bought. And number 3. Might is right. Somebody is going to have to work very hard to turf me out of here. The head of the family, John Paston, pursued Molans through the courts. Molans pursued Paston and his tenants through intimidation and in the middle of this was John's wife, Margaret. While John spent much of his time in the courts in London, Margaret was right there on the family estates on the front line. Here's part of a letter from Margaret that gives a bit of a flavour of what things were like on the front line. Right, worshipful husband, I commend myself to you and ask you to get some crossbows and windlasses to wind them with, and crossbow bolts, for your houses here are so low that no one can shoot out of them with a longbow however much we needed to. And I would also like you to get two or three short poleaxes to keep indoors, and as many leather jerkins if you can. Basically, Margaret expected to be attacked in her own home by Molans, not even on the estate Molans had taken. Margaret is quite a woman, and her letters are absolutely fascinating, Her life was more than a little scary, but she seemed fully up to the challenge. So in the same letter, where she's preparing for an attack, she also finds time to write, Please be so kind as to buy me a pound of almonds, a pound of sugar, and buy some freeze cloth to make gowns for your children. Talk about juggling priorities. Anyway, Lord Molans did indeed attack, as this letter from John Paston describes in the later court case. Lord Molans sent to the said manor riotous people to the number of a thousand, arrayed in manner of war. They mined the walls and broke up the gates and doors and thus came into said mansion. The wife of your petitioner was in the house and twelve people with her, whom they drove out of said mansion and carried her out of the gates. Anyway, the point of all this is that law and order was at something of a premium. The other point is that it was often the lunatics who were in charge of the asylum, i.e. the local sheriff and gentry were by no means always impartial. Take, for example, Sir Robert Hilton. He rode into Sunderland in May 1411 in, quote, a warlike manner. He insulted one John Duckett. He then ordered one of his men to fire an arrow into John Duckett, and then pummeled the poor man as he lay dying. Now, you would expect no king could allow that sort of thing to go unpunished, right? Wrong. This was Henry IV, and he made no move when Hilton's father paid a thousand marks to the Bishop of Durham and received a pardon for his son in return. Henry V's approach to restoring law and order was typical of the man. Generosity to the contrite, firmness to the point of brutality for the recalcitrant. It's easy to see this lawlessness and conflict as a result of a weak central authority, and there was a large dose of that. But it's also that medieval society depended on local harmony and leadership. It's when local divisions were deep that trouble boiled over. And so Henry encouraged compromise, and when that worked, he could be lenient, but when it did not, he would be implacable. There's a famous case to illustrate this, of two lords at loggerheads being summoned to meet the king at Windsor. Ushered into his presence, the two men saw Henry at supper with a large plate of oysters in front of him. Henry's message was simple. He told them to settle their differences before he finished his bowl of oysters. If they did that, 
both would be pardoned any previous offences. If they didn't, they would both hang. It seems to have concentrated the mind of the two gentlemen. It seems to have concentrated the minds of the two gentlemen wonderfully well. The worst disorder at the start of the reign was a hangover of the long struggle with Glyndour in Staffordshire and Shropshire. Henry went in with the velvet glove, a pardon with a small fine for all of those who submitted. And before you could say miscarriage of justice, Henry had 5,000 quid in his pocket and a society with a stake in making things work rather than cause more trouble. Secondly, Henry showed that he would expect much of his friends, but he wouldn't be guilty of over-favouring them and therefore creating problems of favourites that has caused so much trouble with Edward II and Richard. So in Shropshire, the greatest power was his own friend and friend to his father, the Earl of Arundel. And of course, you'd expect Mr Earl of Arundel to be Mr Squeaky Clean, but Mr Earl of Arundel was in fact anything but. He had a group of retainers wandering around the Shropshire countryside, using the recent chaos of the Welsh Wars as an excuse to extort all manner of monies from the poor people of Shropshire. By 1414, royal administration there was basically knackered. Now your Henry IV had turned a blind eye. The family Arundel had been a good friend to the Lancastrian cause, and the Lancastrian cause was in no position to be choosy. The new Henry was having none of it. A special royal commission went to Staffordshire and Shropshire and took over 1,800 indictments. A whole range of Arundel's right-hand men were found guilty, as indeed was the head Arundel himself. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The way of dealing with the wrongdoers probably wouldn't satisfy the modern seeker after truth, light and justice. They had to pay a substantial fine as surety they'd keep the peace in future, £3,000 in Arundel's case. It was a pragmatic solution, if possibly a rather gentle punishment for the perpetrators. Now I can almost hear you all throwing up your hands in horror, throwing the iron aside in disgust, sinking to the floor with your head in your hands and letting the tears seep through your fingers as you reflect on what passes for justice in 1414. But let me tell you, pick up your iron. Dry your eyes. For the first time in many years, order was restored and central justice was seen in the shires. The same approach happened in Devon. At the Leicester Parliament of April 1414, all the talk was of justice. England was left in no doubt. The king would have his peace. And Henry's closest advisers had been given notice there would be no double standards in this, no special favour and people sat up and took notice. By the time of Henry's death, even the Burgundian chronicler would write, He was a prince of justice, not only in himself for the sake of example, but also towards others, according to equity and right. He upheld no one through favour, nor did he allow wrong to go unpunished. 
and the evidence is that over Henry's reign, law and order is not the problem it had been to his father, even during those long absences. Now, in 1414, Henry also had his chance to demonstrate his orthodoxy not just in law and order, but also in religion. So let us return to Lollardy. The last time we went to Lollarding was in the De Heretico Comborendo episode, where we heard about the start of the burning of heretics, and where the Lollard Knights had been strong enough to bring a petition to Parliament in 1411, proposing that the church be disendowed, and that all that lovely money was used to fund the state. They had a leader in John Oldcastle, Baron Cobham, a friend of the king from the days in Wales, and even a suspicion that Prince Henry himself might have supported them in their opposition to his father, the king. Well, those days were well and truly gone. Henry IV had thrown out the suggestion of disendowment with disgust and made it quite clear he didn't expect to see such a suggestion come forward again. Archbishop Arundel had pursued the supporters of Lollardy and Oxford University in the church and either driven them out or driven them underground. Henry V, as a king, was utterly orthodox. He was utterly orthodox because he was religiously utterly orthodox. He was utterly orthodox because he wanted his people to be utterly orthodox in their obedience to the church and therefore utterly orthodox in their obedience to the king. Before you could say jubilati Deo, a proclamation had been issued against, quote, the pestilent seed of Lollardy and evil doctrine. Oldcastle, though well known to the king, had been under suspicion for a while. His chaplain had been found preaching Lollardy in Kent. He himself had been writing letters of congratulation to Bohemian nobles, followers of the heretic Jan Hus. Paternoster Square today in the City of London is a pretty faceless place, exactly what you'd expect to see in any city's financial district anywhere. I think this is one of the developments our very own Prince Charles had a go at. His outrage was partly because it wiped out a historic part of London, Paternoster Row. Paternoster Row was so called because along its narrow confines, the priests and monks at St Paul's Cathedral would go in procession, reciting the Lord's Prayer. By the 19th century, it was a centre of the publishing and printing industry. In fact, it was a centre of the publishing industry well before that, by the early 15th century. We think of illuminated manuscripts and all those beautiful and sometimes funny illustrations being the peculiar preserve of the monasteries, but by the 14th century this was not so. The main centre of production of popular tracts, religious and non-religious, had moved into the towns. And from Paternoster Row poured out copies of Lollard tracts and the Wycliffe Bible on their secret ways around the country. Anyway, the point of this digression is that into one of those shops in 1413 marched the agents of Archbishop Arundel and seized a number of dangerous Lollard manuscripts. The terrified owner feebly admitted that the owner of the books was none other than the well-known baron and friend of the king, Sir John Oldcastle. Triumphant, Arundel took this to the king. He'd already tried to have Oldcastle had up for heretical views, just in March 1413, a chaplain had admitted celebrating Mass in front of Oldcastle, despite not having been ordained. Now Arundel had his man. 
It is in all likelihood perfectly true that both Arundel and Henry had no desire to see Oldcastle burn. What they wanted most was for Oldcastle and all Lollards to recant, agree they'd been wrong, and therefore discredit the whole shebang and return to the bosom of the Mother Church. Much more effective than creating a bunch of martyrs. And so Oldcastle was summoned to meet the King and an array of prelates and magnates at the Black Prince's Royal Palace in Kennington in South London. The most damning parts of the tracts were read out, and Oldcastle invited to condemn them. But no such condemnation was forthcoming. Arundel pressed the king for a decision, but Henry took Oldcastle aside and tried to persuade his old friend to think again. Now the Lollards were well trained for this sort of thing. They had experience of dealing with questioning. The main tactic seems to have been to avoid dire the main tactic seems to have been to avoid giving direct answers, to agree with what could be agreed with, and avoid what could not. But Oldcastle could wriggle no longer, and he retired from court to his castle at the village of Cooling in Kent. Cooling his heels, as it were, half half. He might have hoped that his old friend Harry would let it go. His old friend Harry had no intention whatsoever of letting anything go. Giving people as much chance as possible to do the right thing was fine. Allowing them to avoid royal authority was not fine. And leaving court without the king's permission was an act of the grossest disobedience. And so Oldcastle, in September 1413, found himself on trial, questioned by Archbishop Arundel himself. He twisted and he turned. He prevaricated and obfuscated. But if the Lollards were experienced at avoidance, Arundel was experienced at pressing. And so one night Oldcastle was sent away to consider some key questions he'd managed to avoid so far in the trial. Christ ordained St Peter the Apostle to be his vicar here on earth, whose see is the Church of Rome, and ordained and granted the same power that he gave to Peter should succeed to Peter and all his successors, whom we now call Popes of Rome. How do you feel about this article? Light the blue touch paper and retire five yards. Oldcastle could contain himself no longer. The record of the trial read, He said that the Pope was the true Antichrist, that is, the head of the same, the archbishops, bishops and other prelates his limbs, and the friars his tail. Ouch! Probably not the most emollient statement to make before the Archbishop of Canterbury. Now that the dam had broken, the flood poured out. John Oldcastle spread his arms wide, turned to his accusers and all the bystanders and thundered, Those who judge and wish to condemn me will seduce you all and themselves and will lead you to hell. Therefore be on your guard against them. OK, I think that should do the job then. No way back from there. Oldcastle was led away on the 25th of September to the Tower, from there to be taken for execution. But, oops, on the 19th of October, Oldcastle escaped. And now we have to read Henry two ways. Either Henry had resolved to hunt Oldcastle down and have him executed, and this was just a lucky escape. Or he allowed the escape to go ahead, because this was just the chance he needed to draw out the whole Lollard conspiracy and destroy them all completely. The facts seem to be that Oldcastle now fled 
and spread the message for a rising against the king. The plan was that mummers would dress up and attend the king and his brothers, capture them and bring them away. And meanwhile, lollards from all over the kingdom would gather outside London at the Temple Bar and in their thousands would storm the city. Plans were made in fine detail throughout the city and indeed throughout England. It was the traders and merchants and artisans that had adopted Lollardy. It would be they that would shelter the rebels in their walls before the uprising that would lead to the reformation of the practice of religion in the kingdom. While the planning and mustering and preaching went on from village to village, from Bristol in the west to Norfolk in the east by way of the Midlands, the authorities had a breakthrough. As soon as Oldcastle had fled, Henry's spy network had gone into overdrive and one of them had made contact with one Thomas Burton. For the very princely sum indeed of a hundred shillings, Thomas had pointed the king's agent in the direction of a Lollard carpenter who had a shop at the sign of the axe near Bishopgate in London. On the night of the 12th of September at around 10 o'clock, the mayor of London burst into the shop and there found the carpenter and seven other Lollards dressed as mummers. Presumably one of them was dressed as a walrus, and one of them shed a bitter tear. And so in the morning from their villages, towns and fields, the Lollards assembled at St Giles Field in London. 25,000 heretics gathered outside the gates, screamed the hysterical chroniclers. 25,000 enemies of King and of God and the Mother Church! In fact, as they looked around on that cold winter morning, the Lollards would have known the game was up. There were, in fact, only a few hundred of them. Worse, they found themselves presented with two insuperable obstacles, one of which they really should have thought about beforehand, the city gates. Oops, anyone brought a key? The other was more alarming. The authorities seemed to have known all along they were coming, and each group that appeared was duly arrested and removed. Old Castle himself had been running scared, lying low in London, seeking out the poorer quarters where the ragged people go, looking for the places only they would know. With the abject failure of the rebellion, Old Castle fled. Henry offered a thousand marks for his capture, and Old Castle became, in the words of the jester, a vagabond and fugitive upon the face of the earth. In a way spookily similar to Catholic priests in later centuries, Old Castle found refuge where he could find it hidden away by fellow Lollards or old friends and companions in the fields and hills of the Welsh borders. I always wonder about Mrs Oldcastle in this situation and how all this felt for her. You might just possibly perhaps recall that Joan Oldcastle had been widowed three times and was heiress to a substantial estate and so was quite a catch and could probably really take her pick. So John Oldcastle caught her eye, or very probably was thrust towards her at some do or other by Prince Henry, and he just seemed like a safe bet, best pal of the future king and all. Then he turns out to be a major loser and heretic. We know that when Oldcastle's chaplain was accused of spreading heresy, the king held off out of respect for Joan. So how did it feel when Joan's choice turned out to be a dud? It's tricky. Joan was also imprisoned after Oldcastle's condemnation, but released after 1417. And although clearly the authorities didn't think so, it is possible that she shared her husband's enthusiasms. As it happens, despite a difficult time, I think Joan was fine. 
she selected another hub, chap called John Hopton, and her daughter by a previous marriage inherited and then married. So despite something of a marriage faux pas, Joan ended in respectable retirement in 1434. Anyway, as he ran, Old Castle endangered the life of those who supported him. A chaplain in Oxfordshire was executed for harbouring him in 1416, for example. But eventually, in 1417, his luck ran out. On the Welsh borders, he was discovered, put up a fight, but was taken into custody. He was taken to London, but bolt-wise, he was shot. He was unrepentant, and physically, if not spiritually, this was to give him some problems. He was hung, cut down, and burned. It was not an easy death. And oddly enough, he doesn't appear as a martyr in the same way as other Lollards, which is odd. Now, the thing is, the standard history of all of this, as you've heard from me, is that Oldcastle and the Lollards were simply outgunned and outthought by Henry and his lieutenants. But there is another interpretation available, especially for the conspiracy theorists, for those of you out there who have Henry down in the monster rather than hero category. There are some oddnesses. The basic thesis is that being seen to poo on the head of heresy would be exactly what Henry needed as a most Christian monarch. So, why not fan the embers of a feeble heretical rebellion into flames, and then be the guy to extinguish those flames? So, in all the chronicle accounts, the story is frighteningly and weirdly the same. Lollards equals spawn of the devil, Henry equals saviour of the world. The story in detail is so suspiciously identical, could they have been fed a line? Even to the suggestion that 25,000 Lollards were involved when in fact a few hundred was all that was ever produced. The judicial records of the King's Bench of Justice suggest that jurors were summoned before the rebellion occurred. An ordinance to sheriffs outlawing Lollard gatherings was conveniently issued just a few days before the rebellion. And then everything was handled with spectacular ease. Could it be that the whole thing was manufactured? The rolls and records are littered with contradictions and inaccuracy. The likelihood is that, like the vast majority of conspiracy theories, the government, especially in medieval times, was simply incapable of controlling a fantasy completely and that the story we have is the right one. But if you want to believe the worst of Henry that he was a fiercely intelligent and controlling monster, willing to sacrifice anything at the altar of his ambition, there is some evidence to hold on to. Anyway, thanks to all of you for listening and for your comments on the website, iTunes, Facebook and so on. I have some donators to thank, to Janita, Brenda, Jennifer, David and David. Thank you very much. Next week, we move on to the preparations for the invasions of France and deal with a rebellion. And in the meantime, good luck everyone, and have a great week. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs> 